Well, there's a little pop of color starting to bloom among the trees here in the capital region. Perfect timing as we kick off the autumnal equinox. On this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over this week's top stories. That is just adding fuel to the fire of the racial reckoning that this country is facing over the course of of this very difficult season. We'll hear about a local school district scrambling to tighten virtual school protocols after students began crashing each other's lessons. There were a few kinks to iron out. There are a few, few quirks this week. And we'll learn about an extraordinary young man living in an Albany neighborhood that's stricken by gun violence. But I still feel like everything is more than what you're born into. This is The Eagle, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. Let's start with a look at what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com this week. We are here now with Times Union editor Casey Seiler, as we are every week, to go over the top headlines and give a little analysis about what's going on in the region. First up, we're going to talk about the trial of former Rensselaer County DA Joel Abeloff. Something big just happened. Can you tell us about it? Right. So we're talking uh, Thursday afternoon. Joel Abelove, former Rensselaer County District Attorney, as you noted, um, one termer, he was turned out of office, uh, was on trial facing felony perjury charges and two counts of misdemeanor official misconduct. All of those charges related to his handling of the 2016 shooting death of Edson Thevenin at the hands of a Troy City Police Sergeant during a DUI stop that led to uh, a car chase that ended with Mr. Thevenin dead due to to being shot by this officer. Joel Abelov, the district attorney, put that incident before a grand jury just five days after it occurred, at the same time that the state attorney general's office um, had made it clear to Abelov that they might be investigating the case because of Governor Cuomo's executive order that empowers the AG's office to investigate the deaths of unarmed civilians at the hands of police. Now, the accusation was that Joel Abelov rushed through this grand jury in an attempt to exonerate Sergeant Randall French, who was the shooter in this incident, and he also failed to get a waiver of immunity before bringing Randall French before that grand jury. That essentially meant that Joel Abelov had granted immunity to Randall French the minute he opened his mouth on the stand. That meant that there was no way the grand jury could ever have indicted Randall French. That was related to um, the charges of official misconduct. The perjury was related to Joel Abelov's own testimony in a subsequent grand jury that was called by the state AG's office to look into this matter. Abelov said, oh yeah, I had granted immunity to another uh, police officer who had um, shot a guy uh, in an earlier incident. And in fact, that had not happened. Abelov insisted that 
he had been given bad information and, uh, and had made a mistake on the stand because of it. This was a bench trial, Jess, which meant that Abelov elected not to put his hands uh, or his fate in the hands of a jury, but instead wanted it decided by a judge, a judge from uh, Columbia County named Jonathan Nichols, who two years ago dismissed the charges against Joel Abelov claiming that the state AG's office had overstepped its jurisdiction in doing it. So that decision, Jonathan Nichols's decision, had been overturned by a state appellate court. The Court of Appeals essentially upheld it by refusing to consider it. So Judge Nichols was sitting in judgment. He was the sole juror, as it were, of a case that he had two years ago dismissed in their entirety. So uh, there is going to be a lot of talk about this outcome to the case, the fact that the verdict came so swiftly, I think it was less than two hours from closing, the end of closing arguments to the judge announcing his verdict. And of course, this is all coming the day after the Kentucky State Attorney General announced that only one officer would face charges in the incident that led to the death of Breonna Taylor, the acquittal of Joel Abelov, it's quite likely could turn into another one of those incidents, such as the death of Daniel Prude and the subsequent cover-up of the investigation of that death that is just adding fuel to the fire of the racial reckoning that this country is facing over the course of, of this very difficult season. And I'm sure we'll be keeping our eye on that going forward. And our very own Rob Gavin was covering the trial gavel to gavel, right? Rob is, is our guy for gavel to gavel trial coverage. It takes a lot of focus. It's really, it's quite a marathon effort. Speaking of Rob Gavin, though, that's a nice segue into the next topic here. He covered the Nexium, uh, Keith Raniere's trial back uh, two years ago now, was it? Year and a half, not even. Yes. So, but yes, and Keith Raniere will be sentenced uh, at the end of October. And of course, our sister podcast, Nexium on Trial, go listen to that for all of the latest there. But what I did want to talk to you about was The Vow, the HBO documentary on uh, sort of the Nexium saga. And the Times Union had kind of a starring role in this week's episode. Do you want to talk more about that? Yes. Well, the great, I mean, The Vow is a very, very good documentary. Of course, the first couple of episodes are really told from within the organization. And the frustration, of course, for many of us who have been following the saga of Nexium for, you know, more than a decade now, is that there is almost nothing about the sort of press attention that was devoted to Nexium, especially by the Times Union, in those first episodes. And what we finally got, you know, I believe we're talking about the fifth episode that just aired last Sunday and is, of course, now on demand, is that it did give propers to many of the reporters who covered Nexium, not just at the Times Union, but it made it clear that a series that ran in the Times Union in the winter of 2012 called Secrets of Nexium by Jim O'Dotto and Jen Gish, which exposed beyond creepy behavior by Keith Raniere, of course, the, the man called Vanguard, the guru at the, at the top of Nexium, exploded within the organization like a bomb. However, Mark Vicente, who is sort of one of the, the two main characters in, in The Vow, said that he read all those stories which exposed um, disturbing interactions between young, extremely young women and Keith Raniere going, going back um, uh, you know, two decades prior to that, that he went to Raniere and he said Raniere had all the answers to kind of uh, to knock down 
the, the allegations contained therein. But um, it's remarkable to me that there was so little attention given to those stories, not just within Nexium. You can understand why uh, the faithful might have turned away from, you know, this terrible information, these awful allegations. But from law enforcement, not only in uh, in Saratoga County and Albany County, where Nexium had so much of its operations, but also at the state level and even at the federal level, the allegations that were raised in Secrets of Nexium were essentially a, a prologue to in 2017 and 2018. Um, and if more had been done then, the suffering that the women within Nexium endured in the years after that could quite likely have been alleviated. But unfortunately, there was there was an insufficient law enforcement response to those allegations. Now, I'm sure that this won't be the last that we'll hear of the Times Union coverage in that series. So more to come on that for sure. Moving over to some more local news, the campaign of Albany Mayor Kathy Sheehan was kind of pilfered, I think is the right way to say it, recently by a local restaurateur. Can you describe more about what came out there? Yeah, um, uh, allegations and an arrest of Scott Solomon, who worked on uh, the mayor's most recent campaign and is now charged with uh, stealing more than $20,000, including through the use of a credit card that was taken out on behalf of the mayor's re-election campaign and that was apparently used for charges uh, well beyond the political in nature. Mr. Solomon uh, was uh, one of the operators of Ciro's, the you know venerable trackside restaurant up in Saratoga Springs, uh, his involvement apparently ended over the course of uh, of the summer, but a pretty remarkable story. I mean, politicians uh, do not like to be be taken for a ride by campaign officials, but uh, allegedly that appeared to be uh, the case in Mr. Solomon's uh, prosecution. Now, one last thing, moving up to the state level, there's a lot bubbling up around Governor Andrew Cuomo and the handling of nursing homes during the COVID pandemic. Can you just kind of give us a little bit of a look into what's going on there? Yeah, the State Department of Health continues to stonewall on the release of data about uh, nursing home residents who died not on the grounds of the nursing home, but who were um, shipped out to hospitals and then passed away. In July, uh, the state health department issued what can only be, be described as a self-exonerating report that said that its uh, March policy decision to require nursing homes to accept patients or not to turn patients away simply because of a COVID-19 diagnosis, the report from the health department looked only at the numbers of people who died in nursing homes and did not include the number of people who were nursing home residents who were shipped out to hospitals and then died. That, of course, in the eyes of critics, is a major data point that has been out really since the day that that report came out, um, almost three months ago now, you've heard critics, lawmakers of both parties uh, at the Capitol, clamoring for the health department to release that Howard Zucker, the health commissioner, said, ah, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. But um, uh, people are growing increasingly frustrated. The Empire Center, 
which includes Bill Hammond, who's a former um, Daily News columnist, and he's their healthcare um, policy advocate. In the interest of full disclosure, I'll say he's a friend of mine as well, has sued, the Empire Center has sued for the release of that data. It's going to become increasingly hard for the administration to justify this kind of stonewalling, but it continues to this day. Hmm. Well, you can read about that and all the other headlines that we discussed at timesunion.com. Casey, thank you so much for joining me again, and we'll check back in with you next week. Jess, thanks a lot. Local school districts are confronting a bit of an online learning curve this fall as they embrace full-time virtual school for many students. Teachers at Albany City Schools in particular, they're getting a crash course on virtual classroom security after an eighth grader at Myers Middle School interrupted a seventh grade class at North Albany with some X-rated content. I connected with education reporter Rachel Silberstein to talk about that incident and some other headlines from local school districts this week. Can you just tell me what happened this week? Students started off their first week of online classes this week, um, and it was really tense. We weren't sure it was going to work, but it, it worked well. They're having a significant amount of live instruction from their teachers who are broadcasting directly from the classroom. And so far, grades K through 12 have only had virtual classes, and they've done mostly like orientation to get a sense of how the virtual classroom works. And there were a few kinks to iron out. There were a few quirks this week. In the older grades in particular, we saw on the middle school level, there were kids exchanging Google Meet links. Um, So even though Google Meet is considered a pretty secure serve platform to host online learning, um, you know, kids will be kids and they were sharing links with each other, popping into each other's classes, and in one case, sharing some very (laughs) inappropriate adult content. So Albany City Schools had to sort of regroup and remind its teachers to, apparently he accessed this classroom through an external email account. Um, So they had to remind teachers to not allow kids to enter the virtual classroom if they're not, don't have like a a school email account. Um, And then there were other things that they had to brush up on, like, you know, I, I think a lot of teachers have varying levels of internet savviness um, and so or technology savviness so I think they had to I think there was some professional training but this is always kind of uh it's all new territory so they're sort of figuring out exactly what they need to have like a functional classroom Um, so they're learning how to mute everybody mute the entire class or kick people out and I think some teachers weren't didn't know that they were had control over when the meeting starts and meeting stops because I know last year there was like some concern about kids meeting in the Google Meet chat before the class started and, you know, the schools wanted to exercise a little more control over that. What's different about this year that, you know, maybe teachers aren't used to? I mean, they had to do this at the end of last year, right? Last year, you know, they pulled together some sort of online curriculum sort of on the spot and didn't have a lot of time to prepare. This time they had the whole summer to prepare and they had an extensive curriculum. One thing that's different about this year is they're doing a lot more live instruction. I think a lot of the city schools like Albany didn't have a whole lot of teacher in front of the classroom and everyone's faces on the screen and kids can raise their hand. So it wasn't something that they really got to experience in real time. Um, So this was really a week to do a little trial and error and see what works. Actually, in the younger grades, it was really cute. We saw a problem with parents interrupting the classroom. 
Um, there were a lot of parents who were like, uh, I went to the bathroom, what are you talking about? Uh, what page are we on? Um, and so I, I think, you know, when teachers realize that they have some controls about muting, you know, their classes' microphones, it, it'll make things go a little smoother. Doesn't that add like another dimension, though? Because usually, you know, when kids are in school and classrooms, parents aren't there and, you know, they only really have their kids word to go on what happens in the classroom. So now suddenly they have access to the classroom, so to speak. I mean, that's a whole new level of things, right? That's another change we're seeing this year is that schools across the capital region are really trying to tweak their curriculum and their technologies to ensure that parents have more seamless access to the classroom and the work that their child is doing without like disrupting it or, or intervening. Um, so they can view it through their own login. But for younger grades, it's always gonna be tricky just because if they're learning virtually um, and a, a, you know, a good portion of, of younger children have elected to do the virtual option in Albany, um, they're gonna need some parental support. Albany School District is, is going through some some rough things. Uh, they're facing some layoffs, right? Can you talk more about that? Oh, yeah. So that has been really just heartbreaking to watch, um, you know, because of obviously the states being squeezed, they are facing a massive, you know, multi-billion dollar shortfall that's sort of rolling onto state aid payments. Um, the state in July and August rolled back state aid payments 20%. For this month, they have said they will pay. I think they were facing some support, some sort of pushback from parents and activists and, and unions. NYSIT filed legal action against um, the state for um, re- uh, reducing those payments um, across the board. Because, of course, when payments are reduced by 20%, it's going to disproportionately affect city school districts, high needs districts, usually communities of color, um, which rely on a lot more state aid um, to cover their operating costs. I think Friday is the last day for like more than 200 teachers, support staff, school psychologists, principals, and it's been really heartbreaking. A lot of parents are saying like their kids are devastated. They really were bonded with these administrators. And we're seeing some people move around. We saw, you know, there were some problems at Myers Middle School. The building wasn't quite ready. They had some construction issues over the summer. There was a flood, and because schools were closed, they didn't catch it until the whole sort of mold sort of took over the building. So they had to sort of do a lot of mold abatement. And so, you know, those kids are actually lucky they get to be in the brand new um, Albany High School building. But they lost their principal, and so they're really looking at a lot of changes, and I think that's going to be a little bit difficult because a lot of their their principal, who they were really close to and the teachers really had a good rapport with, um, had to transfer because of this reduction in staff. Um, so we're seeing a lot of that, um, and so th- that's also another you know component of this adjustment period. Yeah, that's heartbreaking. I guess the last thing that I wanted to touch on is well, COVID. <laughs> I mean, that's like, that's woven into everything that we've discussed already. But like, you know, we're seeing headlines every day, like Shen had, you know, a positive COVID case. Niskayuna has a positive COVID case. Like, what are you kind of seeing in your reporting that's coming up when these cases come out? And, and you know, what is your sense of what's going to happen, I guess? Um, I mean, except in the case in Mohanison, that where it actually shut down the school for the most part, you know, these are, they, they occur during like training sessions. So they were caught before students were in the building and they were able to contact trace and, and, and manage the situation. The state in the meantime has put out a COVID-19 report card online where parents can actually log in 
and find out exactly how many cases have been at their school. But we're seeing, similar to the colleges, we're seeing like one case pop up here, really an isolated case where it's a manageable situation. Um, but I think everyone's a little on edge and there's they know that the po there's always the possibility that this could end in, in a second if there's an outbreak or there's more than two or three cases and it seems like it's, you know, it's, it warrants shutting down the building. But so far so good, you know, people are, I think we're all hopeful that this is going to last. You know, a lot of these technology issues that are coming up, they're not just exclusive to, you know, the teachers learning how to use these platforms. It's also brought up a lot of issues with privacy rights for students and, you know, things that might go on in students' homes while they're on the meets and recording the calls. There's there's like a whole slew of issues. So can you sort of sum that up? I think my next story that I'm working on is I'm, I'm talking to the state ed department because I think as, you know, more schools are getting online and actually starting the school year, they're going to sort of tighten their privacy rules um, and guidelines in terms of how these Google Meets happen. Um, of course, when there are video cam, children are encouraged to uh, turn their cameras on so they can participate in the classroom. But of course, that like shows their ha their home, and it does sort of intrude on their privacy on some level. Um, these these classes are also recorded, so they're like downloadable. Um, and that might make kids self conscious. So they're trying to find ways. I think Google Meet rolled out some privacy measures so that kids could like blur their backgrounds. Or if they're self-conscious about their homes, you know, kids are self-conscious and they might not want their all their classmates to see inside their home or what's happening there. So I think that's something that um, state education officials are still trying to work out, um, figuring out how to ensure that kids have their privacy protected and also making sure that these, you know, this content um, is, is encrypted and protected safely and that Google isn't tracking their students' data or using it in a way that's not great. Um, so that's something that's, you know, to be determined. After the break, a young man finds his way, living in one of Albany's most dangerous neighborhoods. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of the Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in his conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talked to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. Every day, 19-year-old Zanif Washington takes a walk around Albany. He walks for hours, traversing the city. He doesn't do it for exercise or for fun. He does it to escape the Arbor Hill neighborhood where he's lived most of his life, a neighborhood that has seen a major spike in gun violence this year. Reporter Eduardo Medina recently had a chance to join the young man on one of his daily perambulations, and he wrote a story about how Zanif's experiences have shaped his outlook on life. I'm gonna be real with you. 
Zanif Washington. What is he like? What's his personality? What are his likes and dislikes? Tell me all about him. Yeah, sure. So Zanif Washington, um, he is a 19-year-old kid who lives on First Street. He's an aspiring musician and uh, an aspiring photographer, an aspiring artist overall. Uh, he's a really nerdy guy. He's into like Dragon Ball Z and, uh, you know, Naruto, this show called Avatar, The Last Airbender. He likes comic books. And so he's this really nerdy kid who's into music. And, and not only is he into music and, you know, on, on a surface level, but he, he's, he's, uh, he's pursuing that, that path as, as a possible profession for him. I'm gonna be real with you. I'm starting to lose my damn mind. They told me I gotta go take it slow. That's how I will grind. What kind of music does he make? Yeah, so he makes, uh, makes hip hop. You know, he raps in his songs. His most well-known song is a song called uh, Hide and Seek. He performed that song last year at this festival called Rocktoberfest. Um, he only performed that one song, so it was this like adrenaline rush for three minutes. He was just performing this song that he'd written to people. He's really into, into hip hop. I asked him his top five artists. I remember his first two. He loves Andre 3000 and he loves uh, Omarion. And uh, he's really passionate about it. He loves old school hip hop too. Uh, 50 Cent, he's really into 50 Cent. But uh, that's, his, that's his thing, yeah. I don't know if people would argue that 50 Cent is old school hip hop. You know? I know, right? That's funny. Now tell me, how did you meet him? There were some layers to how I met him. So first I reached out to uh, Dr. Alice Green. Um, who was a, a, a prominent uh, activist and leader here in Albany. And so I told her what kind of story that I was trying to do. And I, I, the story that I, that I pitched to her that I wanted to do was write about a, a kid who is living amongst uh, these shootings and living in these neighborhoods where there's um, a lot of poverty. And uh, to write about a kid who, who's doing all the right things on paper and uh, just trying to make it by and do his thing. Or her thing at the time, and um, and she led me to this nonprofit worker. His name is Paul. Paul told me about these three different uh, young men that he knew that were that were that were doing, you know, good things and in, in, in tough circumstances. And Zanif was particularly interesting to me just because of you know he told me that he always went on walks every day, and that he was always trying to leave his house. And that to me seemed interesting just because that would provide a lot of movement to the story. And then I drove to Zanif's home and I, and I met him and uh, we instantly talked about Avatar, The Last Airbender and top five artists, hip hop artists and uh, went from there. I was in my room just watching TV. All I hear is like a, a whole bunch of popping sounds and I'm thinking, oh, okay, they're like fireworks again. But then I realized that like there's people outside like arguing and screaming and all that. I don't want to go outside. I don't want to go outside because I don't want. I don't want to risk nothing. He lives in in a street that's seen uh, eight shootings so far this year. Uh, his house has been uh, struck by stray bullets. He's lived there for thirteen years, and, and you know, I'd ask him for specific incidents, and there were, you know, he remember the first time, the last time, but everything in between, it was kind of a blur because it was. Uh, it's happened uh, more often than he'd like. I said I lived around it so much. It's just like. I can't, I can't distinctly tell one apart from another. It's yeah, just, that makes sense. 
It's just oh, it's, it's like it's another, it's another one. Why would you yeah, remember it's, that? It's one? another one. Why do I? Why do yeah, I yeah. care? It just happens. Mm. He's had gun violence affect his family as well. Yeah, so that was really interesting when I when I talked to his mom and him about it. Um, <clears throat> this this didn't come after the first interview. This just came after a couple of days. I think that I was starting to get his trust more and more. But he shared with me that uh, on the day he was born, um, his cousin was being buried that day because he, he uh, Shondell Smith was uh, killed by a stray bullet. And uh, so his, you know, his mom was giving birth to Zanif. And at the same time, Zanif's cousin was, was, was being buried. And so, you know, from day one, he, I mean, obviously he didn't know about that, but, um, you know, that was involved in his life. And then at age six, he remembers that was the first time he, he discovered what a gunshot sounded like because he was playing Spider-Man 3 in his living room. And then all of a sudden, uh, the living room window, window was shattered by a bullet and it left a hole in his living room. And uh, from there, it's just been this, this constant force in his life. I just wanted to stop. I was annoyed. I'm not even upset. I'm not sad. Right. I'm just annoyed. And I'm numb to it. I shouldn't be numb to that. No child should be numb to hearing bullets every single night. Now that he's 19 and he's in, in this in-between period of not being in high school and not being in college anymore, he's kind of uh, in this strange transitionary times where every day he, he leaves his house for most of the day to, to try to leave his neighborhood. And he goes on walks. That's why he goes on walks to leave. I mean, he enjoys them, but he, he doesn't want to stay there. He talks about wanting to leave and, and get in a, getting an apartment closer to downtown, which is just a 20-minute walk away. It's a huge disparity when you go on these walks with him. You literally like, went on walks with him all day, right? Yeah, so um, the first four days of me being with him were just kind of interview days where I talked to him for an hour, an hour or two, or sometimes three hours. And then the last four days, I, 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 I stuck with him from like 1 p.m., which is when he is waking up recently, till about 8 or 9 p.m., for those hours, he was just he was he was walking around, and so I followed him, and I would see the things he was seeing. That's just life, you know. Everything, is, but I still feel like everything is more than what you're born into. Mm -hmm. You can still figure out a way out while you're doing whatever it is that's not right. Right. You're just using that as means for survival. That's not really who you are. You're just right. in that circumstance. Mm -hmm. And I feel like a lot of people are in that situation right now. You know, there, there's one scene in the story where he's walking back home and he sees a man crossing the street and then the car gets really up close to the man and the man says, yells out, like, hit me, hit me. And it's this really tense moment and, and Zanif is kind of glancing his eyes over there and he mutters, oh my God. And he, in person, seeing it was really tense because Zanif had talked about how there are disputes and these disputes sometimes lead to, uh, to incidents, to violence, sometimes shootings, you know, who knows that one. And, and so this is happening and, and, and then it de-escalates, you know, the, the car drives off and the man keeps walking and Zanif keeps walking and I'm following Zanif. And the man who had yelled, hit me, who was very agitated, the, his backdrop is just this grove of dilapidated houses. And so you see how like the environment that, uh, that this man is walking in, that I think, I hope paints a, a clear picture of, uh, you know, it's not just blind rage that's leading to the incidents. There's a lot of factors that, that go into, into these, these, uh, these shootings. It's a systemic problem. Yeah. What do you want people to take away from this story? Uh, that's such a good question. I, I, I hope the, the, the story is, uh, gives the effect of like you looking through a window 
and just uh, seeing what this what this young man sees every day. I hope the story offers some some clarity in a really complex issue, and uh, you know I hope the story uh, humanizes and makes people empathize with with people who are in the middle of, of of a really of a really crazy year. There's a pandemic. There's an increase in shootings. There's uh, a lot of economic turmoil, and there, there's there's protests for racial equality. And these neighborhoods are majority black. And so, you know, I don't think the story tries to answer any of these issues. I think it just, I hope it just tells a story of how all these issues intersect and how they're intersecting and, and changing and transforming this one young man's life. And who knows, you know, for the better, for the good, but it, it's certainly affecting him. Well, it's a beautifully written story. I highly encourage everyone to go to timesunion.com and check it out. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features.